From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Joe Hockey was treasurer in the Abbott government and he's former Australian ambassador to the United States. Hockey was posted to Washington after Malcolm Turnbull seized the leadership from Tony Abbott in 2015. His years in the American capital took in the Trump presidency and he developed a close relationship with Trump, though at times things were very volatile from the president's end. Hockey, who now has a consultancy firm that operates in the US and Australia, has just written a memoir titled Diplomatic. He joins us today. Joe Hockey, you're in Australia in the middle of an election campaign. You make it clear in your book that you really wanted to be Prime Minister. So do you have regrets now about being out of politics? No. No, I don't, Michelle. And great to be with you. Um, And can I also just say, well, I have an opportunity, how much I've admired you over many years, and you're an icon of journalism in Australia, but also, you know, you're the very best of Australian journalism. So can I do that for a second, (laughs) you don't mind? Um, You're overkind. (laughs) No, well, it's true, it's true, it's true, and I think all of your listeners will know that. No, I I don't miss politics. I mean, I I had a great run, 19 years, um, and I was on the front bench for 17 of those 19 years, and, uh, you know, had lots of different jobs and gave it my very best. And, you know, I never really knew when it would be time to go um, other than the moment when I felt that I'd given it my all. I was exhausted. I no longer trusted my colleagues or liked them in many cases. And I started to move on. Now, let's talk about your experience of the Trump years. You identified early on that Trump might be elected president and many other people at the time uh, thought that was out of the question and you reached out to the Trump campaign. What was the reaction of the then Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, and the Canberra bureaucracy, the Foreign Affairs Department, to this reaching out? I think at a political level... They were urging me to be cautious. They were concerned that that it, it looks so obvious that Hillary Clinton would win. Why would you offend the Clinton campaign by reaching out to Trump, uh, who, of course, was very unpredictable in the campaign as he was as president? But um, yeah, the public service didn't like it at all. They were very, very um, anxious. They were annoyed. Their their very strong view was, in their view, Hillary is going to romp her. How could America possibly elect, you know, the wild guy, Donald Trump? And, you know, I just formed a view that, firstly, I've been a much more senior politician than any of them and, in fact, had spent more time in politics than either the prime minister, the foreign minister or uh, and certainly any of the public servants. And I had, to, I had a judgment, I'd formed the judgment that Donald Trump could win. It's a two-horse race and I suspect he will win. So I did what was in the best interest of the nation rather than uh, take the um, guidance or the criticism of uh, various public servants seriously. And how important for what came later was developing a personal relationship with the Trump campaign and indeed uh, with him as time went on? It was crucial, absolutely crucial. I mean... Diplomacy is just about human relations. It's a bit, you know, it's, it's countries dealing on the same basis as with each other as human beings would. So 
you're never going to get on well with someone you don't know. Uh, you've got to, you actually going to have to engage. And um, when I pointed out to them that when, you know, after the, the phone call between Trump and Turnbull, uh, there was a, it was a very frosty environment. And that and, was over the refugee agreement. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think the, the moment I broke through with the White House was when I reminded them that, you know, months before, I'd been the only diplomat to reach out to the Trump campaign and, you know, I was unpopular in Australia for doing so, but I was prepared to stand by them during their darkest hours and I expected them to stand by us at the same time. And that was when we'd laid the foundation for a future relationship that allowed us to move forward from the phone call. You make the interesting point in the book that Trump is attracted to people on the basis of their wealth. So while he obviously had little in common with Turnbull and there was that dreadful phone call, later on he seemed uh, both mystified and slightly offended that Turnbull had been overthrown because they had this odd sort of relationship as both being rich, although Trump was somewhat richer. Yeah, look, Trump defines the people he wants to hang out with as winners and losers. If you're a loser, he doesn't want to have hang out with you at all. If, he, if you're a winner, then he wants to be all over you. And the easiest way to measure a winner or a loser is by how much money they have. And because Malcolm Turnbull had money, he was a winner. Because Scott Morrison had defied all the critics and won the last election, he was a winner. You know, one colleague, uh, one, one friend of mine, very, very close friend of mine, was a, a very, very senior position holder in the US under Donald Trump. And uh, he went in to see Donald Trump one day and uh, was asked to go and see the president. And the president uh, wanted to redesign. Uh, I don't want to give it away who it was, but he wanted to redesign what this secretary was responsible for to make everything look prettier. And uh, the secretary responded to him, Mr. President, it's all about how lethal things are, not about what they look like. Take, for example, Mike Tyson. You've seen him, Mr. President. You're a fan of boxing. Mike Tyson is the most lethal fighter in the world, but he's not the prettiest fighter and he's not the best looking fighter. And Donald Trump responded, well, I've seen Mike Tyson fight. I've seen him lose twice. Get out of here. <laughs> and uh, so... You know, in his mind, he was thinking of Mike Tyson as a loser rather than a winner. So everything had to be defined uh, as a winner to be uh, within Donald Trump's orbit. So that's why, you know, going just carrying that theme forward, that's why Donald Trump, Michelle, might not run next time. If he thinks he could lose and he would be the first person in a long time to lose two presidential elections, then he won't run. But if he thinks he can win and he will win, then uh, it might be more tempting for him to have another go. So in terms of establishing this relationship and keeping it going, what was the basis of being able to get a, a rapport with Trump from your point of view? I know you played golf, although that seemed uh, at times a bit potentially lethal for uh, for Trump because <laughs> of your balls came uh, pretty close, I, I gather, from the book. But yeah, I only hit his golf cart once. <laughs> yeah, but he wasn't in it at the time. He was teeing off on the other tee. So that's probably lucky for you. Oh, no. Well, there was. I'm sure at the time there was a number of Secret Service snipers focused on me. Donald Trump feels threatened by people that are 
accomplished in particular areas. So he felt as president of the United States, he, he was the smartest person in the room. So when a general or an admiral or uh, one of his secretaries, someone would come in, a doctor, Dr. Fauci or whoever it might be, and they would, you know, he'd have limited bandwidth to take their advice because ultimately the more advice he took, the more he would illustrate that he's not an expert on the subject and therefore not the smartest person in the room. So with me, I had, I was no threat to him. Therefore, he asked a lot of questions of me about a range of different subjects. I mean, he asked me, he was going through his, his own cabinet and asked me for my opinion about individual cabinet uh, secretaries. And that was really odd. I mean, he asked me, he said, what do you think of Malcolm Turnbull? And I mean, you know, Malcolm Turnbull's my prime minister. So what, what do you think I'm going to say? But before I could even answer, he'd answer the question and say, well, he must be smart. He kept Kerry Packer out of jail. And he's made a lot of money. And I went, well, well, hang, hang, hang on. Then he'd move on to the next subject. So, you know, he was deeply curious about the bushfires in Australia. He asked a lot of questions about that. He asked a lot of questions about, you know, dangerous animals in Australia. He asked uh, a lot of questions about the Indo-Pacific, about countries that were friendly to the US, that were not friendly to the US. And, you know, provided I wasn't trying to be smarter than him or have a, you know, massively... Uh, much more significant understanding of the issues than him. He wasn't threatened and he'd ask a lot of questions. He had a curious mind. But you had some bad moments with him, didn't you? Not because of you particularly, but because of issues that arose in the relationship. Oh, sure. Oh, you know, we had the, we had a phone call over uh, the refugee agreement between President Obama and Malcolm Turnbull. That was, that was an early and, and very tough test. Um, we had to overcome that. There are tariffs and quotas. Uh, he imposed tariffs and quotas on every country that exported steel or aluminium to the United States, apart from Australia. And, uh, you know, Malcolm Turnbull saw it as a very important, you know, reflection of the, of the friendship between the US and Australia that we not be subject to tariffs. But to be the only country not subject to that was really extraordinary. Uh, and there are a multitude of other areas, much of them unreported, where um, there were challenges. But by far the biggest was, you know, um, Donald Trump thought that Alexander Downer had a hand in the foundations of the Mueller inquiry, which was something that absolutely dogged Donald Trump's administration for two or three years. It was an attempt by the Democrats to delegitimize his election. And um, he blamed us for starting the whole damn thing. And he, he, he used to refer to Alexander Downer as Alexander Downing. And that and, was uh, just because Downer had reported a conversation that he'd had. Downer was right. So Downer, um, as High Commissioner in London, had been approached through the embassy for a meeting with a fellow called Papadopoulos, who was working on Trump's campaign at the time. And Papadopoulos boasted to Downer, and he was, he's young Papadopoulos, I think he was even under 30, and he was like big noting himself. He said, look, we've got a whole lot of dirt on Hillary that'll get out. You know, a lot of dirt that's going to come out. And at that time, there was insatiable demand for intelligence on the US elections. And Alexander Downer wrote a cable back to Canberra, basically saying, you know, I've had this young guy come to me and say they've got a whole lot of dirt on Hillary Clinton that they're going to dump. Nothing more was thought of it until the WikiLeaks uh, came out. WikiLeaks came out and a whole lot of stuff was dumped on Hillary Clinton. And Downer thought, holy moly and you know this is the whole russia connection and so on so he walked literally walked over the u.s embassy 
and said to them, look, I had this Papadopoulos fellow come to me in a few months back and say this. Now, at that time, the FBI had just been, you know, heavily criticised by Democrats because they'd launched an investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. And he was down at telling them that there was something on, you know, about a fellow in the Trump campaign. So they immediately launched an investigation, a full investigation into the Trump campaign. And that was the precursor to the whole Mueller inquiry and the whole scandal. Uh, now, um, Trump said to me, oh, look, that downer fellow, he gave money. The Clinton Foundation is close to the Clintons. I actually said I sat in cabinet with him, and I can tell you he was one of the most right-wing members of cabinet. I mean, he's no fan of the Clintons. Oh, well, why did he give that money? Why did he give that money? I said that was Australian taxpayer money, and that was about actually helping with good programs dealing with HIV and helping you get it. There was this constant, but he kept coming back to it. And uh, no matter what I said, it sort of didn't alleviate his belief that somehow it all started with Alexander Downer. Now, let's come to the present. Joe Biden is copying a good deal of criticism for various aspects of his presidency. What's your assessment? Well, firstly, I think overwhelmingly Joe Biden was elected because he wasn't Donald Trump. And he was a safe pair of hands as an alternative to Donald Trump. Having said that, Donald Trump got a record, massive record Republican turnout and high, an all-time high Republican vote. I think there's two things that have surprised people. I think Joe Biden has aged quite a bit in the presidency in the last, uh, you know, he's only been president for just over a year. I mean, and uh, he's really shown, he, he hasn't had the energy that you would expect of someone um, as president of the United States, recognising he's over 80. But he can be over 80 and full of energy, but he just looks frail. But the second thing is he's run a very left-wing agenda, and that's completely stunned um, completely stunned uh, middle America because they thought he was a safe, middle-of-the-road middle, middle of the road sort of person. But instead, he, he, you know, he tried to get through a massive spending package and massive tax increases, and America is just not tuned into that. They're not buying that. And... Uh, and, he, and he's run quite a, quite a centre-left agenda, which they don't like. And, uh, and so he's lost a massive amount of support. I mean, in fact, in various polls, he's less popular than Donald Trump was at some of his lowest points. Do you feel then, in light of, you know, his apparent uh, frailty, I guess, that uh, he is up to the job? Look, I think, yes, he's still up to the job. I mean, what it looks like in a year or two, I don't know. I mean, the pressures, it's the hardest job in the world as President of the United States. You know, it's beyond the capability of a single human being, to be honest. The expectations are ridiculous for the President of the United States. So the pressure is immense. And even with his vast experience, I mean, that'd take a toll. That'd take a toll on him. I don't think he'll run again. I really don't. The question will be how he manages a transition to another Democrat. Uh, obviously, his White House staff don't want to give Kamala Harris too much prominence because then people will say, well, why do, why do we need Joe Biden in the presidency if, if Kamala's so good and we can have her in? So they're basically freezing her out of a lot of stuff, which has reputationally hurt her a lot. And after Kamala Harris, it's very, very hard to find a middle ground de Democrat candidate who could lead them in the next presidential election. Having said that, the Republicans have a lot of candidates. And, of course, because Trump has such enormous influence in the party, he, you know, he will either determine who the next Republican candidate is or he will be the next candidate.
America remains a very fractured society, and obviously we've seen this becoming worse over recent years. Do you see dangers for Australia? Could we go in a similar direction, or is our society too different for that to happen? Well, there are two things that work in our favour. The uh, first is compulsory voting. I think the, the, the challenge in the United States is you know, firstly, you try and get out your own people to vote. And the more extreme you are, the more you villainize your, your, um, and, and, and radicalize your opponents. It's easier to get people to come out and vote for you if they're against something than they're for it. So the fact that you have to rev up your base constantly and feed red meat to your base in order to get them to vote and donate in America really does mean that the middle ground, middle ground gets drowned out. Uh, and in Australia, because thankfully we don't have to do that, there's a compulsory voting, everyone has to go and vote, we don't have that battle for the extremes. And I think that's really, really important. The second thing is we still have a bit of a handbrake on, you know, what you can say about each other in Australia. And as you know, Michelle, I, I sued Fairfax when they said something about me and I won. And I think that right to sue for defamation is hugely important. The political ads and what people say about each other in the United States has no filter, has no boundaries. And as a result, it becomes more fractious. It becomes much more aggressive. And I think it's really, really important to have proper defamation laws that allow someone to go in and protect their reputation so that people cannot make ridiculous false accusations against others. I mean, the stuff that was that was said and written about prospective justices of the US Supreme Court, I mean, was just repulsive. I mean, it was outrageous, let alone what they say about each other. So we've got handbrakes, you know, handbrakes in Australia. Do you think some of those handbrakes leaving aside defamation have in fact been eased over recent years, even since you've left? Has social media taken the debate down into the gutter somewhat more? Absolutely. I mean, look at that stupid clip. Today I've just done TV on Channel 7 and Channel 10 about the book, and they had this idiot guy come up to Scott Morrison and film it and, you know, shout abuse at Scott Morrison. And I mean, that was just repugnant. And why is that dominating the news? Why is that on every news story on free-to-air television? I mean, really, that's just some young rap bag, you know, who posts that crap on social media and, and mainstream media takes it as oh, a big Big, big event in the campaign. Cut me a break. We Surely Australian journalism is better than that. Surely we can have a better dialogue than that. You know, I, I mean, I really feel strong, obviously feel strongly about it. I just, you know, what social media does is it makes the voice of the critic far louder than the voice of the advocate. And the critics and the extremists drown out the reasonable voice, the credible voice, the informed voice. And, you know, we've all got a responsibility to prevent that from happening. A lot of people have been saying, well, this election is uh, not enough about policy and too much personality-based, things like that. So let's just talk in concluding a bit about policy. Your budget of 2014 was full of ambitious reforms that proved very unpopular. In retrospect, would you have written that differently? Uh, there's, you know, one, one or two things I would have done differently, but in the entire conversation about a budget, you have to do what's right. I mean, there are thousands of decisions in an individual budget, and sometimes, you know, you won't know whether something has a negative reaction. But the fact was, at the end of the day, most of my 2014 budget went through the parliament. 
most of it went through. 90, probably 95% of it went through. Uh, you know, everything from cutting fuel excise, uh, or sorry, increasing fuel excise. That was a principal decision to increase fuel excise taxes to pay for roads so that we could pay for better roads. And, you know, I've been somewhat uh, amused at the silence from the Greens and even some of the Labor Party about the uh, climate change impacts of the cut in the fuel excise recently. I mean, the whole the whole policy basis for the carbon tax was to put a price on carbon emissions and somehow everyone agrees it's a great idea to cut fuel excise because the cost of fuel is more important than carbon emissions. I mean, you know, th these are the sort of contradictions you get all the time in politics. What I tried to do is say, okay, if you want to maintain the best health system in the world, when you visit a doctor, you know, for the first 12 visits, if you can afford it, not if you're a pension, if you can afford it, you pay $5 a visit. Now, in the wake of COVID-19, you would hope people would see how important it is to have a well-resourced health system. And what we've had to do in COVID-19 is help to pay for that with money we're borrowing from our children and our grandchildren because it's borrowed money. We're running big deficits. But other things, you know, putting money into medical research, which, you know, in that budget we created the Medical Research Future Fund. Thank God, because some of the work that was done on COVID-19 came from the money for the research fund. So, you know, I, I, from an overall policy perspective, thank God we did it. I mean, we did get back to surplus within four years. I mean, it was the balance, the budget was balanced in four years, which is pretty much the timetable we set out in 2014. And, uh, and then, of course, along comes COVID. The government spends a lot of money and, you know, it had the capacity to spend a lot of money because it was back in surplus. So, you know, it, it, that's why you save money for the tough days. Uh, and, I, you know, I don't have any regrets about the 14 budget. So do you think uh, Australia should be ambitious to get more economic reform? And what if the coalition's re-elected, what would your advice be to Treasurer Josh Frydenberg for the next term in the area of reform? So, Michelle, I mean, you've been a you know, huge part of, of you know, of, of the political discourse in Canberra for many years. Perhaps my 2014 budget was the last budget really that was focused on the role of government in reform, uh, in changing things. So, you know, when, you know, in 1990s, to his great credit, you know, to their great credit, uh, Bob Hawke and Paul Keating initiated a number of reforms that made the Australian economy much leaner, much stronger, uh, they, they delivered a whole lot of what are called productivity initiatives, things like national competition policy, privatising assets, etc., user pay charges. Now, they did that because if they hadn't, the Australian economy would have been beset by constant inflation. It would have been wild rides. They did the right thing at the time, but they deregulated the Australian economy. And what happened was we started to see disruptors come along. Disruptors, you know, over the years start to appear, whether they be, you know, the internet delivering news instead of news agents, uh, supermarkets, you know, helping to sell pharmaceuticals rather than just pharmacists, or, you know, we saw the disruptors come into retail trading like Amazon or Uber disrupting taxis. What's happening now is governments, in order to respond to public pressure, are re-regulating. They're re-regulating the economies and there's an overwhelming temptation to start 
imposing through things like climate change, more and more strict regulations on the economy, more paperwork, more green tape and red tape. If they do that, then at the end of the day, every Australian is going to pay a lot more for day-to-day life. We need to try and get the balance right. So from my perspective, future governments have got to resist the pressure to re-regulate and try and do everything they can to maintain the status quo, to obviously do the right thing when they have to, but to maintain the status quo rather than fall in the trap of re-regulating the economy and punishing everyday consumers with high prices. What about tax reform? Do you think that if a coalition government is re-elected, there should be an overhaul of the tax system, even bearing in mind that the government is still undergoing changes in personal income tax? Well, you know, there's variations in tax rates. I mean, the the fact is that if if you've got a tax, you want it to be as broad as possible with appropriate safety nets. And the GST works. Frankly, increasing the GST or broadening it to food or so on would be very, not only unpopular, it'd just be impossible to do because you need the agreement of all the states and territories and so on. So let's just be realistic about what can be done on tax. I think the tax system at the moment, it works. There's no excessive leakage from any particular area. I think compliance with the current rules is, is, is you know, strong. And I think tax stability is really important. Now, if you're going to have tax reform, it, I think that reform will come in moments of crisis. That's when you'll be able to deliver a big change. Uh, what does a tax crisis look like? Well, probably it looks like massive, massive shortage of money for the economy and the fact that your taxes aren't working or, or that they're, they're having such a negative impact on the economy, they're not sustainable. I mean, when I left Parliament, I suggested in my final speech to the Parliament, you know, some some tax changes, but, uh, you know, they weren't taken up. But at the end of the day, it's very hard to undertake that reform without bipartisan support. So, Hockey, just finally, if you were an ambassador based in Canberra for some country or other, what would you be reporting about this election to your home base? Who would you be predicting at this stage <laughs> will win? Well, nice try, Michelle. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would have expected, yeah, that's a good angle to take. Who do I expect? I think it's too close to call, to be honest. I think, uh, you know, Scott Morrison, uh, he needs to win seats to win government, basically, and as we know, because you're inevitably going to lose seats if you're if you're a government. And for Anthony Albanese, it's, it's a, you know, very tough job. I mean, very few, I think, you know, only three Labor leaders have... have come from opposition to win government since World War II. And in one case, it was a very long, you know, it was, you were there, it was, it, it was time in 1972 for Gulf Whitlam. And it was, it, and it, it felt like time for, you know, Malcolm Fraser for various reasons in 1983. Uh, and then of course, you know, um, fast track to, to Kevin Rudd. And Kevin Rudd was like a, a younger clone of John Howard and it seemed like a painless transition from one older John Howard to one younger John Howard. Uh, of course, it didn't end up like that. You know, I think, uh, I think it's just too close to call, really. I, I, I genuinely feel that. But both parties have a pathway to victory. And then, as so often the case, events, as events unfold during the campaign, you'll get a clearer picture.
of who, which way the, the, you know, the, the events are breaking. Joe Hockey, thank you very much for talking with us today and good luck with the book tour. That's all from uh, this Conversation Politics podcast. Thank you to my producer, Ellen Duffy. We'll be back with another interview very soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.